Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the wonderful thing about Tiggers edition of Romaniacs, <laughs> where we'll be asking if Tiggers really are wonderful things. I'm Naomi Smith, and I've got two of our regulars here. Roz Taylor is the research manager at the Truth, Trust, and Technology Commission. Hello, Roz. How are you? Oh, I'm very well today. Good. Uh, this week, we've been warned that we're going to have to eat tons of British leeks if No Deal interrupts food supplies. Um, but John Allen, the, the the chairman of Tesco, says as long as we eat spam and tin peaches. We're going to be fine. Um, other brands of uh, tin peaches are available. Um, but you, you've begun stockpiling, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. I've got an IKEA bag full of stuff clogging out the utility room. I mean, what, one of those massive big blue ones you yeah, put yeah, inside yeah. the trolleys? Yeah, yeah because, okay. you know, it's all such heavy stuff, tins, you know, packets. Um, we, you, you, you managed to take a snap of it um, and put it on Twitter, and I think we spied some tinned potatoes, chopped tomatoes, noodles, but also um, apricot wheats. What are they? Yeah, those are purely for my son. Um, they are like mini Weetabix stuffed with apricot puree. He loves them. He just gobbles them down. So I figure that with some <laughs> fruit content, that's going to be the way forward. That's what we're all going to be eating. Le- less of a fan of leeks. Uh, yeah, imagine. leeks. Le- I mean, you know, they say yeah, they can substitute for onions, but I don't buy it. Okay. Well, they do last quite a long time, I think. So, yeah, probably a good thing to be stockpiling. Um, also back with us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and a one-man Derek and Clive of Brexit. How are you, Ian? <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah, no, pretty well, actually. Yeah, pretty good. Um, while we're on food, uh, this week Michael Gove told the National Farmers Union that Brexit will apply rate tariffs on food imports to protect farmers. Um, yes. What, what does that mean? What kind of protectionist future? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, well, because I guess the thing is that so farmers have this issue of um, if you're going, the EU has already said in the event of no deal, we're going to chuck up. Ta- By the way, I get to talk about tariffs before we even introduce yeah. the guests. <laughs> Usually they make me wait ages we're before I get to fucking you. talk about it's this a good shit. Day. All right. Uh, so you, the farmers' problem is this: is that basically if if the EU puts up tariffs in the event of no deal, which they have said they will, they face massive obstacles to their largest export. And then if we say, as some people have wanted us to say, we're going to reduce our tariffs down to nothing for the EU, we have to do it for the whole world. And that means you get lots and lots of very cheap produce coming in. So you've you've screwed British farmers in terms of domestic competition, and you've screwed them in terms of their exports. So Gove, in his position, who, t- to his credit, he does do a bit of listening once he's in a Secretary of State position, um, although not when he's in a fucking referendum campaign, uh, sort of said, well, actually, no, we'll be keeping the tariffs up. That's quite important. I mean, that, that shows that he'd be wanting to stick with the farmers. What it also shows is all those claims about we'll have all this cheap food, cheap food, pro- uh, cheap shoe products as, as Jacob Rees-Mogg keeps on going on about and clothes none of that looks like it's going to take place our special guest is Christo Fufas talk radio presenter writer for the Telegraph on LGBT issues and a functioning Brexaholic welcome to our safe space Christo hello thank you for having me it's lovely to be in this dingy dark damp Soho <laughs> basement giving us an idea of the conditions we'll be living in post the 29th of March thank you for that a few rats in the corner <laughs> yeah amazing on, on a scale of um, say the Telegraph to full European army. How Romaniac are you? Um, I was a reluctant Remainer at first, passionate Remainer now, yet I still don't feel like I know enough to actually have voted on it. Right. And I, because I don't believe any of us. You know, you, I, I, I read your articles, Ian, you know, quite passionately, but I still even don't believe you know enough to have voted a referen- <laughs> in a referendum Indeed. because I don't really believe now with hindsight that was the way to solve the problem. But, of course, we are dealing with 30 or 40 years of this sort of drip, drip, dripping away anti-EU sentiment rather than just a yes or no question, which at the time I thought it was. 
Indeed. So does that answer it? I've kind of I've I've moved positions to now become a militant Remainer. Well, in, in which case you are incredibly welcome in this <laughs> studio. Um, you did a, a piece last week um, around what are we missing out on because we're only ever bloody well talking about Brexit. Now, yeah. obviously, you know, as Romaniacs in this podcast, that's all we ever talk about and we love talking about it. But but what are the key things you think that the whole country has just put on ice and it isn't discussing? Because well, of all I mean, to, to take your pig. I mean, we've got. There is so much we are not discussing. All we are talking about is Brexit. Do you remember Theresa May on the steps of Downing Street where she uh, came in as as Prime Minister and I was actually quite excited that she was going to be Prime Minister. I actually have quite a sympathetic view of Theresa May in comparison to other people. I don't think she's done herself many favours, but I was really... I've always considered myself sort of centre-right ideologically. I don't necessarily love the Conservatives who are in power at the moment, but certainly I believe in a free market. I believe that a free market should pay for... um, People should pay their taxes, and then that free market should pay for the public services we need. And... I was really excited when Theresa May was on the steps of Downing Street talking about how if you are from a minority in this country, then you are less likely to, you know, do well in education, to do well in your career. She laid out this great shopping list of social change that she was going to to be bringing in as a Tory. Mm. And none of that's happened because all anyone's been speaking about is Brexit. So that really was what I meant was that we were we're supposed to be getting this 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 socially conscious conservative leader and we've ended up with someone bogged down completely with Brexit who quite possibly ran the worst election campaign in history. I mean, who takes a landslide lead and, and, and loses it in weeks? <laughs> There's probably a word for her. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> and, and are you getting more kind of hardline people calling into your shows now who are more like, you know, give us hard Brexit right now? Have you noticed any kind of discernible difference? What I seem to get and I'm very conscious of the fact that I am a bit like this is this idea that I am a constant stream of negativity Um, which I don't need Brexit for that thanks I could do that on my own (laughs) but I I can't see the positive in this I would love I'm waiting desperately for someone to call me and tell me why we're doing this Mm. because I still don't know and though I understand the arguments about the certain undemocratic parts of the EU and the Commission and those certain things that are annoying. Bit about like the, the House EU. of Lords and you know, Absolutely, things we've got here in the UK. Which is a point yeah. I make till I'm blue in the face. Um, but, you know, while I understand those, the disproportionate reaction we've had to them is ridiculous. I mean, the prosperity that we are giving up as a result of a couple mm. of commissioners we might not like who actually the things that they put forward are voted on anyway, so it's not like it's completely undemocratic. But because of those ridiculous, really small things, we are we are acting out the biggest act of self-sabotage so for just no reason. And I want to be wrong. I'm desperate for someone to say, well, actually, these are going to be the advantages. But it was when, like when the withdrawal agreement came out and all of the people on the far Brexit side were seemed surprised that, oh gosh, things won't be as good as they were before, which was exactly what people on the Remain side have been saying for about three years. So, n- no, all I seem to get is people calling in answer to your question, um, the, saying I'm too negative, that we need to be more positive, and we get that same old absolute claptrap about believing in Britain and the Second World War and all of that kind of stuff. And I love my listeners, but 
I still am yet to hear a reason as to why we're doing this. And I, I'm fairly confident you're not going to hear that reason uh, in the, the next hour on this show. I'm desperate to be wrong. I'm desperate for someone to tell me that I am wrong. I really am. I want to be wrong because I would love this to be actually something that could be seen as positive. But I really don't see how... Well, we're going to get... <laughs> Can we try? Can we try this out? <laughs> we're, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're certainly going to cover various different topics. I don't think we'll, we'll give you an answer to that, but uh, we will be talking about a bit more of the doom and gloom. But hopefully some of the more uplifting things that have happened this week, we're going to get straight into the emergence of the independent group, the Labour split, followed by the Flint, Subri, Wollaston breakaway from the Tories in a minute. What does it mean for Labour and their Brexit policy for the future of the Tory party and for prospects of a final say referendum? Plus, it's time to get your banners together and your your boots on your feet. The most important march of the whole Brexit crisis is going to be taking place on Saturday, 23rd of March in London. You need to be there. We need to beat the figures from last time and we're going to talk about what difference the Put It To The People march can make, plus what the Honda closure story says about the government's handling of Brexit. And after the climate strike protests elicited a lot of harumphing from older, grumpier commentators about how awful young people getting involved in politics is, we're going to be asking if resentment of the young by the old is one of the key drivers of Brexit. All after a quick reminder from Roz. We're thrilled to announce that the next live show will be at the podcast Live Politics Day on Sunday the 7th of April at The Light, opposite Euston Station in London. We're joining the Times Red Box for the many with Ian Dale and Jackie Smith, Samira Ahmed's How I Found My Voice, James Dellingpole's Dellingpod and many more for a day of political podcasting live on stage. Tickets are available at politicslive.com and it's £15 for our show or £45 for a day pass so you can see all your favourite and perhaps not favourite <coughs> podcasters <laughs> in the flesh. Patreon backers get a discount, of course. Check your inbox or Patreon mas- message box for details. And they also get audio from our live shows, those fashion-forward Romaniacs coffee mugs and T-shirts, a weekly column from one of the panel two, and, of course, our new monthly Ask Romaniacs show. We're recording part one of the next Ask Romaniacs right after this show. Just search Patreon Romaniacs or go to our Facebook page to find out how to back us on Patreon. And it's podcastlive.com for tickets for Sunday the 7th of April. Thanks, Roz. So let's start off with the Tiggers, the independent group. Luciana Berger, Chuka Amuna, Chris Leslie and four other Labour MPs announced on Monday that they were... Um, not quite starting a new party, but they were leaving Labour, citing the plague of anti-Semitism, poor performance on Brexit and a lack of faith in Corbyn as Prime Minister. They were joined by an eighth MP, Joan Ryan, on Tuesday and today, Wednesday, some of our favourite Tories, Anna Subri, Sarah Williston and Heidi Allen, quit the Conservatives, citing the government's disastrous handling of Brexit. Now, in terms of anti-Brexit campaigning, um, this, of course, doesn't really change the parliamentary maths at all because all mm. of these people are people that were voting the right way on Brexit anyway. But it definitely isn't totally unhelpful when it comes to uh, putting more pressure on the Labour leadership to switch position. Um, and it was nice for the Lib Dems to be a bigger group than anyone else uh, in the Commons, even if it only lasted for 48 hours. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> bless them. They, they had two days where they weren't the, the, the smallest group, bar, of course, Caroline. Um I really thought that that launch was electrifying, um, but I think today's announcement from the Conservatives has been even more powerful. Um, But if we we cast our minds back to Monday, which given everything that's happened since, it seems like quite a long time ago, there was um, this moment where there were some uh, sound problems on the BBC and a disembodied voice said, between this and Brexit, we're actually fucked. Ian, was that you? 
No. No, I should mention that there are other humans that also swear, and <laughs> some of them do it around TV cameras, so it can't be controlled. Well, plus, I don't really feel that way. I mean, I was quite critical that morning when I heard about it, because I just thought, why? I just couldn't get my head around the timing. You know, someone tweeted to me, it's either two years um, too late or two months too early, and that just seemed instinctively to me, like, why would you be doing this now? Then, watching that, that Labour thing, I just, you, you know, you can't help it. You're just like, oh, no, it's the fucking hope again. I've got the hope. I've got the hope. It's like, it's it's creeping up. It's impossible not to feel that way. And now, after after today, I'm actually really starting to feel quite quite hopeful indeed, by which I mean about a 16th. Um, so, I mean, looking at it, you suddenly think, well... We were pretty stuck and deadlocked before in terms of movement, even on the Brexit thing. And I think but th- this is a bigger conversation than just Brexit. It's also about where are you as a country? How do you talk to one another? How do you debate? You know, what, does the system reflect what is happening in the politics around it? Um, and suddenly you think, well, actually, there are there are ways that this could play. I mean, you've got it gives you a good cop, bad cop with both of the party leaders being like, well, I can always go outside. You know what I mean? If, if you're on the inside of the party, you say, well, I don't like the way you're doing this. I can always go outside. And that gives you some kind of leverage, some kind of a credible threat that simply wasn't there before. You can even see and I'm being a little bit sci fi about this and maybe a little bit more what I want to happen rather than what will. It's, you know, there's an idea floating around that was originally put out by the new Europeans. Um, this group in Brussels has now been picked up by a couple of Labour MPs are going, well, fine, we'd support Theresa May's vote, uh, deal on the contingency that she would hold a referendum on the back of it. So and that's that, on the that Peter Kyle basis. amendment. Right, exactly. Yeah, it originally comes yeah. from this group, the new Europeans. Yeah. The, the Labour MPs are sort of trying to distance themselves from them, I think. But that's where the idea originated. Um, on that basis, I don't find it impossible to think that these MPs who are now in the independent grouping could happily do the same thing with May and go, well, fine, you know, we'll support the deal if you agree to put it to a referendum in the event of maybe a no confidence motion, which we're creeping closer and closer towards. So suddenly, strategically, I started to feel more hope, as well as just generally thinking there are people out there who are actually doing something different. Thank God almighty, something seems to be changing. Anna. And do you think the Tories have having them on board now, these these three Tory uh, women MPs, do you think that has tipped the balance further in their favour of success. I absolutely do. And not only that, but look at the quality of the people that you're seeing out there. Look at, you know, when when I was watching Luciana Berger talk, it had been a long time since I'd seen someone in politics talk that open, like with that much emotional truth about what was going on. Even when you take the people that I really admire, like Keir Starmer, he's talking in like relentless criminology, just trying to keep everything together in this coded speech. You had someone who was speaking with emotional truth, who was relentlessly logical and structured in the manner in which you put arguments across. Then today, I mean, I was watching Heidi Allen. Heidi Allen isn't even my favourite of those three women. My favourite is Sarah Woodister, although I might just put up posters of all of them in my bedroom right now. <laughs> I mean, they're fucking great. And like, honestly, Heidi Allen, it, she's so impressive. Mm. Like the way she comes across, the, the, the authenticity of, of her manner. Now, people might want to say, well, look, there's a question of policies of how much can these groups can consider. I don't really see that they have any more distinction between them than, you know, the right of, than, than, you know, than Redwood would against King Clark in the Tory party, right? Or that Dennis Skinner would have against, you know, Ed Miliband in the Labour Party. If those parties were able to hang together for all this time, I don't see why a group like this wouldn't be able to congeal around policies in that same sort of way. So, yeah, I think it's good that you, it's good for people that want to see different tribes working together. It feels good in this period of just intense, vicious, fucking poisonous tribalism to watch people sit down together who used to be in different tribes 
lives and smile and shake hands and think we're going to work together in a pragmatic way. And actually, it could pay dividends, I think, with the public uh, in a way that might might surprise us. Ros, do you think, you know, picking up on that point from Ian, that, that anything around this is to do with the fact that there are so proportionately so many women involved? I mean, I think it's it six women now that are involved in the Tigger group. Two or th- three. Yeah, we've got three, three Labour and, and three. So six, right? Two, yeah, yeah, yeah. So six yeah. women involved. I mean, do you think that, that that will help to change the tone of Brexit debate? Yeah, I certainly hope so. I was actually thinking today, why hasn't Ken Clark joined them? And then I thought, maybe he just decides to stand back and let the women have their have their moment, which would be great, which would be really, <laughs> really nice to see. Um, I think I was just so pleased, just so delighted that this happened because it felt like we had got out of a straitjacket, out of a situation in which there was just a complete impasse with the Labour Conservative parties. And I am not tribalist. I've never been a tribalist. It was one of the reasons why... Sometimes I found life at The Guardian quite difficult because The Guardian can be a very tribal place. <laughs> and, um, You'd never be able to tell. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I used to work with Shadow Smill, except I am. But, um, <laughs> but it was... I'm not tribal. I... I, I I, which might sound a bit pompous, but I like a more European conception of politics where people actually can work together, mm. where the parties are more fluid, where you're not born Labour and born... Well, you're never really born a Conservative, are you? People don't tend to say that anymore. Um, and all born a Lib Dem. Oh, but I do. I say that I was a born Conservative. Really? Oh, that's interesting. But I was a child of Thatcher and right. all of that stuff. But well, yeah. I don't know whether that's going to get me lynched in this room. Whether... <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> we've had, we've hurt had, a little bit. We've so, had some of our best before. friends are Conservatives. Yeah. <laughs> oh. and, you know, nice of you <laughs> and I, I actually I think um, this is a very interesting uh, development for me as well because it's not a party I think it's very important it's not a party yet um, and that it hasn't really got much to say yet for itself just this one statement which by the way doesn't mention Brexit at all or it didn't yesterday mm. when I last read mm. it and um, that is important because it's really important that they're not defined solely as being Remainers because then that will become Ramoners and that will become Romaniacs as if that were an insult but um, it's very important the party doesn't solely define it not but the movement doesn't solely define itself as um, about Brexit because this isn't just about Brexit. It's about anti-Semitism. It's about the sclerotic nature of the parties right now. And I think, I think this is actually the right time to launch a party. I think that's because we are now seeing the deadline move ever forward. After Brexit, if it happens, if no deal, there will be complete chaos. Everything will be up in the air and it will not be the time to start a movement. The time to start a movement is now, have something in place, get ready to welcome more people, to lay lay the foundations. And that's why I'm very happy that it's happened now. Chris, so you, you've just said that you feel that you probably were born Conservative, small c, presumably, yeah. um, and, and, and you were certainly at least at one point a fan of Theresa May. Where do you see yourself aligning now? I mean, does, does this, this group of people draw you more than the Conservative Party? Um, yeah, I mean, ideologically, as I said at the start, I'm, I'm more Conservative. I'm the son of a you know Greek immigrant. My dad sold the bacon sandwich, actually, to Ed Miliband, so that's <laughs> part of the strategy. That was my dad's cafe. Um, <laughs> That wasn't his his entire strategy at the time, but it just was coincidence. But, um, you know, my dad came here as an, a Greek immigrant, had nothing, and under the years of Thatcher and being able to start his own business and getting out there and, and, and working and having that sort of ideology um, 
you know, he really benefited from that. And prior to that, he hadn't been able to do that. There was so much regulation. The late 70s was not a great time here in the UK. And um, so certainly, as I said, that's where I sit ideologically. But I have on many occasions recently um, done phone-ins and spoken to so many people about how I feel really quite politically homeless. Mm. And although that's where I sit ideologically, there is no one moderate at the moment. You've got sort of the crazy Brexit, ERG, barking mad Tory party now with no majority whatsoever anyway. You've got uh, Labour, which is, you know, anti-Semitic, mm. far left, Corbyn. I mean, just... And also they have no Brexit policy. I mean, mm. I would love, again, just to hear what someone in Labour thinks about Brexit in a coherent way. Um, so I feel quite homeless at the moment. So it is exciting that there is a new group of, of people. And actually, the only time I've ever emailed an MP is I actually unsolicitedly emailed Anna Subri just to say... Please, after the a thing outside Parliament, going, please hold your nerve. Yeah. Um, what I think is happening lately, when you consider that you've got the absolute charlatans like Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, David Davis, all of these people, Liam Fox, easiest trade deal in history, mm. all of these people that have served up absolute bollocks to absolutely everyone that have offered no solutions whatsoever. I mean, you can say one thing about the leavers, mm. they left mm. because none of them hung around. Um, when you have that sort of discourse, which is not really to be believed, actually, it says something when we've got, what, 11 politicians who we're all exclaiming, it's quite amazing that they have been honest and that they're having a nice debate with each other and that they're actually, we believe what they're saying. That's so rare nowadays that we've got 11 out of how many that we're singing their praises mm. that they're actually speaking the truth. I am... Um, so not as a co Totally. And I know as, this is just a coincidence, but I've been listening to the Downing Street years um, in my car as an audiobook. Margaret Thatcher speaking her actual words about the Downing Street years are quite something to listen to. But I don't, I don't agree with a lot of what actually she said. Some of it I do. But it is so nice to actually listen to a politician who clearly... You know, As the courage of their conviction. Totally. And, and you know, really mm. didn't care about what people thought mm. because she knew she was in the right. Mm. Now, she didn't do everything right by any means whatsoever, but that is so rare nowadays, such as the level of politicians we've got, such as the level of discourse and such as the level of lies mm. that are that are coming out of people's mouths. I mean, when you've got Nigel Farage, Jacob Rees-Mogg, David Davis and Liam Fox having people voting because they are not the establishment, I mean, we've gone mad. We we've have. insane. Well, yes. We're having a nervous is... breakdown as a country. As, as, <laughs> as, as, as the United Kingdom, we are having a total nervous breakdown. I think that we have no identity and we don't know where we are. And do we think that this uh, move is going to cause any kind of a breakdown within Labour leadership and push them to move position? Um, you know, putting the anti-Semitism to one side, which I think is going to be their sort of natural reaction to to what happened on Monday. What on people's votes stuff, Ian? I can't. I, I mean, I find it absurd. When you ask me questions like that, I'm always looking at you and be like, I mean, I know you're the host today, but that's the kind of question I should be that asking I would usually you. feel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very strange experience. Um, OK, look, so... I see all the aspects of Labour's behaviour after this has happened is just a corroboration of the criticisms that people that have joined the independent group have made of the party. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Brexit or whether you're talking about them suddenly putting out this statement going, oh, now we're going to pass a new law to make sure people can petition to have people MPs that change party, have a by-election, just like, fuck off, granddad. <laughs> then, you know, then they have the thing of putting out, I mean, the stuff that they're... they're 
internally they've been saying of like, oh, as soon as the Tories join, they're like, look, it's a privatisation establishment, Tory Funded Blairite Funded by Stitcher. the Israeli government. Right, exactly. It's the fucking smears, the innuendo, just the abject fucking filth that these people wade in day in, day out. That is the standard operating system for how they do things. And there isn't a hint of change. The most is always McDonald. After Tom Watson did his very good statement as deputy leader, Watson, of course, with his own personal mandate, because he's selected by members, he has a lot more leverage there. Um, you saw a bit from McDonald, but there's no fucking listening taking place at all. It is just the sanction you have. And then who gets put up for Sky News today? Fucking Chris Williamson. Chris Williamson who then goes out there and he's just like, oh, calls, um, basically suggests, quite strongly suggests that people like Luciana Berger are just making up shit about anti-Semitism to damage the leader. Talks about these right-wing groups who have somehow made up these complaints on Venezuela and anti-Semitism. Just conspiracy theory mm. and smears. That is all they have to offer. And I will be astonished to see a change because I don't think they're capable of changing the manner in which they see the world. And, and can I just say, I, I think that that's precisely where we are on both sides at the moment, in as much as you can, you can say to someone on the far left of Labour, look, here is a list of horrific anti-Semitic tweets and abuse that someone has had, the actual evidence, and they will say, no, it's all conspiracy terrible. Someone on the right who's really into Brexit, you could say to them, look, look, here is actual evidence, here is an actual statement from Airbus <laughs> actually saying Brexit, or fly BM actually saying Brexit in the statement. No, nothing to do with Brexit. Project Fear, that boss... I've had people on Twitter telling me that the boss of BMI is trying to cover his own backside, and this is, you know, some mm. some numpty on Twitter who's never had any in, in, uh, experience in the aviation industry whatsoever who knows more about aviation than BMI and Airbus, because I think that's where we are, that people are bringing... It's no longer about factual debate. Mm. It's about emotion. Mm -hmm. And on the left of the Labour Party, they're, they're so embroiled emotionally into it that they can't accept anti-Semitism. Mm. And the people who voted for Brexit who were really emotional about it... Um, or who were really passionate about it, that passion has now turned into emotion. And that's why no one can say that it's a mistake because people have so much uh, tied up in it, so much emotional baggage with it. This is so, what Puritanism uh, does, isn't it? I mean, Puritan, as soon as you really believe in the great thing, whether it's the great leader, Jeremy Corbyn, or whether it's, you know, Brexit as this, you know, moment of national thing, if that is true and absolutely cannot be affected in any way, then all criticism must be conspiracy. That is the only answer it can be. And the reason you see that kind of behaviour on both sides, on the Tory side and the Labour side, is because they've been taken over by a puritanical form of politics. And it's this blurring between fact and feeling. Like, you, you try and have a factual debate with people on either side now, and, you know, Twitter is... is, is, is I mean, I, I engage too much on Twitter and I fight with leavers way too much. But um, you, this, that's exactly what it is, this Puritan idea that, that um, you offer someone an actual tangible fact and it's dismissed. And speaking of, of facts and evidence and data, uh, there have been a few polls out since the Tiggers launched. Um, before we came on air, um, I had a quick look at one of them, which was a Times YouGov poll today showing Labour down 9.9% uh, if there was a general election today. And if you apply a national uniform swing to that and caveats around that, because obviously that is an imperfect science, the results um, show a net loss of 98 seats for Labour. Ros... I know your feelings are all too well about about the Labour leadership. You're not. You're. I mean, I think we've heard a very firm no from these guys in terms of uh, any likely moves from them. What's your view? 
I don't think Jeremy Corbyn can row back now. I think uh, it's very unlikely that he can call for a people's vote. I think the people around him won't let him. I think he's a fairly malleable individual, personally. I think um, he's been caught up in forces that are actually more powerful than him. And he was not, he was never cut out to lead the Labour Party. Let's be honest mm. about this. Mm. Jeremy Corbyn did some great, you know, protests against uh, against Mandela in the 80s. But frankly, before he's... Man, I have to, just a bit before he sues us. It's yeah, before before he's, Mandela. He, uh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> just, um, it's not a court case, I feel like I'm going to win. <laughs> but he's not a distinguished politician in any sense. Mm. He's not a great speaker. He's not a great thinker. He's not, he's not got a wide appeal. He's got a very limited appeal, which frankly has been based on the disgust that people feel for austerity, which I appreciate and understand. Um, and they vote for him in many cases out of a feeling of sheer desperation. I cannot stand a Tory government anymore. So I think Corbyn himself is very malleable, but the people around him are not, and they will not let him move. And speaking of the people around him, of course, the, the Labour tiggers broke ranks on the day that Derek Hatton was readmitted into the Labour Party. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> what do we think that symbolises? Is this more Stalin than Marx? Oh, Christ, I just couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe it. I mean, the timing, apart from anything else, but, but it was unbelievable that a man who has no qualification for joining the Labour Party at all and, and, and created so much suffering and screwed over Liverpool so royally in the 1980s and has done nothing for the Labour movement since, didn't even like Jeremy Corbyn, has not been particularly positive about Jeremy Corbyn. Why the hell would you let someone like that in? Well, maybe because we are going back to the 1980s uh, when we obviously had the SDP launch. Um, it was interesting what you were saying earlier, Ros, that um, you think it isn't time for them to be a party, a movement is the right thing, that it's it's only right that their policy framework will follow and things like that. Of course, with the SDP in January 1981, they did launch the Lime with the Limehouse Declaration, which listeners, Google it, go and read it. It's very inspiring, egalitarian, pretty liberal stuff, actually. Um, so, so do go and reread that. And and, and by comparison, for, for a Politico, I sort of watched Monday as a bit of a damp squib, whereas the stuff I heard from particularly Heidi Allen today, but also Sarah and Anna, um, was much more uh, sort of fire-in-your-belly, um, exciting stuff. What, what lessons from the SDP should this group be taking? We should be careful about one thing, which is the, mus the British political muscle memory from the SDP is not always that helpful. It's quite a complicated scenario. The idea of they just let in Thatcher for 10 years is not... I mean, it's highly questionable. There's a lot of other evidence which suggests that actually for a lot of Labour voters who are alienated from Labour and would have gone straight over to the Tories, it actually gave a sort of halfway house home for them to go to and, that and meant that she didn't increase her support. Wasn't it only one election that they did particularly well in anyway? Their vote declined mm -hmm. after that. Right. So they had a huge vote share, yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, the alliance uh, got about 25% at one point And then, just, and then it declined. Uh, indeed. So we're in this period where people keep on using historical precedents mm -hmm. and then the chaos of events through changes in technology, through change changes in ideology and most importantly through through a massive deterioration in the sort of economic stability around us since the financial crisis keeps on making those historical examples mm. not work mm -hmm. now right now there is simply less attachment to either of the two main parties as brands mm -hmm. than there was back in the 80s mm -hmm. that is simply the case things are much more changeable they're much more movable and in that context 
I would not be surprised to see, I mean, these numbers right now are the fuck off numbers. You know what I mean? Like when we're looking at 14 or 12 or 14%, mm-hmm. they're the, the kind of things that the, the Lib Dems used to pick up or yeah. UKIP used to pick up. I was like, fuck the lot of them numbers. Now, that might not have much meaning, but you can keep your fuck off numbers mm-hmm. even when you develop a more positive policy proposal. I could see them ending up with something like, you know, it wouldn't be crazy to say like 40, mm-hmm. 50 seats. Enough that when the other two parties are struggling to be able to form a government, you can become kingmakers. And I think that that is a credible thing that could happen in a fairly short time scale. And you've also got both sides. I mean, and the the the, the thing that makes this more exciting, which I think Vince Cable said yesterday, was the fact that that this could be a, a deeper and, and, and more effective uh, breakaway than the STP, because, of course, you've got it from both the Tories and Labour, mm-hmm, whereas yes. obviously with the STP, it was only... Labour. So this goes across the House, which hopefully will make it more interesting. I just want them to have balls on on the ideological thing that you mentioned. Mm. Of saying, like, you know, I didn't like the statement that they put out about their values. It's just like wishy-washy bullshit, I thought. I I didn't really appreciate it. And Chris Leslie's Social Market Foundation pamphlet at the end of last year probably is what they're using as a bit of a loose framework, because out Mm -hmm. of all of them, he's the only one that's really produced anything. And I'm honestly telling you, it is the most bland, unappealing, (laughs) we're against bad things, and in favour of good things, but not too much kind of mush. That has to stop. There has to be an attitude of saying, look, only the political class, only the political class thinks in terms of all privatisation good or all privatisation bad. Most people in the country believe in a sort of mixed economy where they want certain things to be held in public and operated publicly and they want certain things to be done privately. You know, there's not a lot of people talking for the nationalisation of T-shirts and there's not a lot of people talking for the privatisation of the NHS. That is simply the way it is. And a party that is prepared to say, look, we know it's a mix, it's a case-by-case basis, we're not going to be ideologues about this, but just like New Labour were ideologues about privatisation, we refused to go down that road just as much as we refused to go down the Corbyn road. That kind of thing, I think, can work, but you've got to have balls around it. You can't just deal with this wishy-washy watercolour bullshit. Moving on, the announcement that Honda will close its plant in Swindon in 2022 with the loss of 3,500 jobs directly and many tens of thousands of more indirectly was accurately described as devastating to the region. It was also controversial, with Brexit-supporting MPs like the region's Julian Tomlinson claiming the move was simply nothing to do with Britain leaving the EU and Molly Scott Cato of the Green Party saying this is the day that will be remembered as the day Project fear became Brexit reality. Swindon and Wiltshire voted to leave the EU in 2016 with a 54.7% vote and sadly we saw more reactions of the well they, they, they voted for this they absolutely deserve it type. Even if you were to be that vindictive that does still mean that 43.3% of the population voted to remain and they certainly don't deserve any of this because nobody does. Yeah. Roz, the, the Brexiters were really keen to pin this on falling diesel sales and um, investment in electrical vehicles in, in Europe and not Brexit. How disingenuous do you think that is? <laughs> well, it was really complicated. Let's be, uh, let's be honest about that. One of the major factors was the new EU-Japan trade deal, actually, which means that you can... How long did that take to negotiate, Ian? <laughs> well, it certainly exists quicker than ours with Japan. <laughs> the key thing about that is that it allows Japan, therefore, Honda, to import into the EU without tariffs. Therefore, the uh, rationale for having a factory in the EU, or, or indeed next to the EU, um, decreases. However, and, and falling diesel sales, that's a factor too, and that's frankly a good thing. I'm bloody fed up with diesels um, at the moment <laughs> and poisoning my children because I live off the archway road. But there you go, separately. <laughs> um, and so that is no consolation to people in Swindon. 
the fact is, although there were a number of things going on here, Brexit was undoubtedly a factor and the Honda leadership were re uh, reluctant to say so, I think, because you don't want to criticise a uh, sitting government and you don't want, uh, especially when you have a particular culture of being very careful, I think, yeah, about Confucian your relations. Yes, a very, yeah, not losing face. Exactly, not losing face. But it, uh, the uncertainty that Brexit creates, and particularly around supply chains, clearly, is undoubtedly a factor. It's almost like, you know, things can be many things at the same time, right? <laughs> Who would have fucking thought that if you go around, you know, saying that we're going to interrupt a, you know, global just-in-time supply chain for a complex manufactured good, you are going to discourage investment in your country, whether it's new people coming in or whether it's people who are already here, where there's a very tenuous plant, isn't necessarily making that much money, choosing to go out. And that can coexist with the effects of free trade agreements, with, you know, market concerns, with this general sense around the car industry that what used to be a manufacturing product with a little bit of tech in it is fast becoming a tech product in a metal shell. And that, that means that your regulatory lobbying is going to need to be quite hard. And you're not going to do that in fucking Britain if it's caught between the two great big giants of regulation, which is the US on one side and the EU on the other. All of that stuff comes into play. So that's why it's so dispiriting to look at the Commons uh, yesterday or Tuesday and see the business secretary stand up and actually, to be fair to him, to give full credit, really do pretty much say this. And you go, well, it's a bit complicated, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And just have person after person stand up and go, it is all 100% Brexit. Or the other person stand up and go, it is absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. And the next person stands up, it's 100% Brexit. And the other person, and you just think like, this fucking people's jobs, man, that we're fucking talking about right now. We're talking about three and a half thousand probably at the plant. We're probably talking about about another three and a half thousand in supply. Well, it's about it's one in four. There. We heard a figure one in four jobs links. In Swindon? Yeah. Oh, my God. The, right. Jesus Christ. Within the supply chain. And the, Oh, I see. Right, right. Yeah. Sorry. Within the supply chain. Um, and for that to be the response from MPs is just lost in this brazen black and white ideology rather than trying to find out what is going on when it's people's livelihoods was just, you know, another extremely dispiriting day in Brexit Britain. And Christo, when we do hear, you know, and I, I think it's the very tiny majority of, uh, sorry, minority of Remainers that will gloat about this and say, oh, well, they bloody voted but for I, it. I'm one of them. Okay. I, I'm vindictive enough to say that. Why? Without, because I think I'm vindictive. I've got a couple of caveats. I'm not t generally that vindictive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. But um, no, I, I think that if you voted for Brexit in a place that is being affected negatively by Brexit and you still stand by that vote, you deserve everything you've got. You are the turkey that voted for Christmas. If you are someone that voted for Brexit, seeing what has happened and is now holding up your hands saying, what a terrible mistake I made, how I was fooled, how I believed it, and I'm sorry, great, then, then you are on board with me. But if you are still standing by that vote, if you're still standing by that vote and you live in Swindon or Sunderland, then you are barking mad. And I'm sorry, I have absolutely... No sympathy for you. Now, when it comes to Honda, I think we do need to be a bit careful because it's very easy, and I am one of the first to do this, that I will absolutely chew up and spit out someone on Twitter that says, you know, like I was just saying earlier about BMI, you know, BMI mentioning Brexit, and then you've got, you know, Joe, who lives in Essex, saying, no, I know more about the aviation industry, and at BMI, we're going because of other reasons. Now, if we're going to jump down the throats of those people and say, you don't know better than the heads of those industries, then 
I think that we need to be careful that Honda didn't mention Brexit than to look like we know more than the bosses of Honda. Uh, now, having said that, though, if what is being said, if we just take as face value what the bosses of Honda and Nissan and various others, even though they mentioned Brexit, mm. but if we take on face value what they've said and that diesel sales are dropping, that China's economy isn't growing that much, the free trade deal between Japan and, 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 and the EU, and the general worsening economic conditions around the world. Fine, that might not be a Brexit reason why they're leaving, but even in that kind of climate it's for a country <laughs> to be changing its entire economic model, if we just take mm. the, the, those facts as just, true, is, is disastrous. But just winding back up to your point about, you know, those who, your caveat, you know, it's a very strong and important caveat to make that if you voted leave and would still vote leave despite losing your job... And, and you're in you, Sunderland you, and yeah, Nissan is making child, the extra yeah, elsewhere then, and all that. Then, you know... Uh, a plague on on all your houses mm. but d isn't it how you say it that matters because there's a way of saying that which does just hurt all of us in the remain movement because it 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 is a sort of very tit for tat angry uh message as opposed to a, a much calmer more rational way a kinder way of I, I, helping people see the light i mean, do you I, think there's no point with those people? the rational side of me agrees with you but i'm angry I'm angry with those people. I'm really angry with the people who can't see what's happening and can't and who are still standing by it. And you're right. The calm and rational side says you should be perhaps a little bit more moderate, which I am at times on Twitter, but sometimes I just get too angry. The thing well, is that they don't always have the same... I get it too, and, and I sometimes feel it too. And it's, of course it's true that people have to take responsibility for their actions and their votes. But the thing is, not everyone... You know, I spend my entire life just gorging on this shit, and I like, am sort of privileged slash curse to have like, a job that demands <laughs> that I do it but lots of people work fucking hard you know like they, they have those jobs those jobs are tiring and they haven't always been that interested in like you know lots of my family my friends are just people that aren't that interested in politics and they will take a wrong message from somewhere and I feel like if, if my response is then to get angry then I'm gonna I'm gonna lose them but it's not even just strategic it's also just sort of moral like I, it's not the blame is not with them the blame is, is with the people that lie no, but the, if they're still standing by it now two and a half years later the blame I think is with them because they're not acknowledging and they're not l opening their eyes to see what's happening around them. And that that's why I'm angry. Like I said, if you s acknowledge that perhaps you've not made the right decision, absolutely great. But to still stand by it, you're barking mad. I'm always worried about it. I remember when, when I first sort of, um, like uh, about two two years ago, I, I started I started talking about the sort of um, the Norway option for a, for a lot, lot of Remainers. Can you move over and whatever? It's called and Common lots, Market 2.0 now. Common Market 2.0, yeah. <laughs> if, if only you put 2.0 at the end of something, apparently it's great. Um, and, at the end of, and at the end of that, um, a lot of sort of Brexiters came out and who otherwise would support that thing and went, look, we're not willing to work with those people until they say that they promise never to try and remain again. And it was this sort of trial of, you know, your complete conviction on a thing. I'm always very nervous whenever we say to people, it's this and you must renounce your former faith or else you can't be on our thing. It sort of makes me think that's not a healthy way to be. Finally, the big March March. The People's Vote March in October was a huge event for the Remain campaign with hundreds of thousands of people turning out in London. People's Vote are aiming to top that with the Put It to the People March on Saturday the 23rd of March, six days before Britain is scheduled to exit the European Union. The following week, a cross-party group intends to amend the withdrawal bill so that May's deal will only go into effect if it's ratified in a referendum. Naomi is one of the organisers, so in the interest of impartiality... <laughs> We're so impartial. <laughs> we know, we're renowned for I it. Know. Who could ever challenge us? I'm going. I'm going to handle this one and grill her mercilessly. <laughs> Naomi, 
Why that date in particular? Because some of our listeners have said it's a bit too close to the final exit date to make a difference. And I agree with them. Actually, I do. Um, I think we need mobilisation sooner. uh, And I think we need it regionally, not just in London. I think the difference between 750,000 on the streets in October versus hopefully a million plus isn't going to tip the balance. Uh, I do think it's too late. Um, That is a discussion that has been had within the movement um it's 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 happening on the 23rd of march but the 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 caveat that i would say is that um you mentioned that it might be a few days before uh the votes we're now hearing that the votes are going to be brought forward to next week so next week was supposed to just be votes on amendments and we were going to see uh the the cooper amendment come back Uh, and some others. We're now hearing that all the votes might come, so there might be a meaningful vote next week. Um, There might, of course, also with that Cooper Amendment 2.0, they go in. Uh, It's a good amendment, (laughs) one that's going to win this time. (laughs) If it wins, then of course that buys us probably another three months. So we would be in an extension period by that stage. And also there's rumblings of an amendment or a motion going down um, to say that if Parliament hasn't reached an agreement by a certain date in March, that we will revoke Article 50 and that seems to be gaining quite a bit of traction too. So it'll either be, yes, very, very, very much too late with six days to go and and probably be much more about rallying the troops and and talking about what next and how we, you know, keep making the pro-European case after we've left or it will be in the very sort of early days of an extended period of Article 50. Can I add something very briefly to this, actually? It's sort of footnote that there's, this is sort of breaking news, actually, but there's another amendment that's just started to float around where there's very high expectations for it, which is about ring-fencing the citizens' rights part of the withdrawal agreement in the event of no deal. And that's now fluttering around a lot of MPs' offices. Lots of names haven't been revealed yet are starting to be added to it. There's quite a lot of hope from Europeans and from Britain and Europe that, that actually might be some sort of way forward of at least sort of cauterizing the wound on, on the most important part if we get to no deal. So events are moving quite fast now, I think. And yes, I suppose there is a risk that you that, that we that it won't hit at quite the right time for the momentum, but we'll we'll, we'll see. But it's bloody hard to organise these things. So, you know, it's a full credit to <laughs> everyone involved in it. You know, you have to get permission. You have to talk to the Met Police about it. You have to talk to other landowners about it. You have to talk to the Mayor of London about it. You know, that it is not easy to do it quickly uh, and safely. And, of course, that is always of, of paramount importance. So um, I, I'm, I do not want listeners to be discouraged. I think it is absolutely crucial that we are there. It can't look smaller. That is important i just wish we were doing it you know closer to the half term that we're in at the moment uh, than than mm. six days before yeah. what is the Logistic- logistically deadline. i think it's really hard actually to have more than seven hundred fifty thousand people there because when i was there last time all the 4g network went down yes and all the, a number of tube stations were closed and it was really actually quite hard to get there mm. um it's really hard to insert i, I never made people. it i never made it to parliament yeah i, I, I didn't either i didn't get no. all the way there christos did you go on the previous marches do, do they do you think they're cut through to your listeners um i well i've got quite a right-wing pro-brexit audience so it is seen as um ramona's you know accept the vote you know you get these brexit bingo sound bites don't you you know respecting democracy the will of the people <laughs> all of these things which you can tick off as you hear them so there isn't much tolerance for um that kind of thing however I think it is important that we get our voices heard and that that someone actually just notices. The problem I have 
the, the only issue that, that I think that is a good argument against it is that do they actually listen? The last time we had a huge march that was millions, nearly, which was Iraq, which I've arguably is one of the reasons I think also we're in this mess because of people worrying about ISIS and all this kind of stuff, which we've seen in the news this week, created by our war in Iraq. Um, but no one listened about that. And to now have someone like Tony Blair coming out and telling us to not to not to leave the EU after, and, and go on these marches when he ignored a, a march very similar, I think does stick in your craw a little bit. But... I will be plugging it on my show, of course. <laughs> because I, I think people should go. And, and Indeed they should. Heard. Indeed they should. And speaking of invasions, um, it's a bleak old Brexity world out there, so we're going to try and keep it light with a not entirely serious big question for the panel every now and again. Well, you know, it's that sort of talk about supply chains every week. Um, sorry, <gasps> Ian. So... Why did you say that like it's a bad thing? <laughs> so this time the question is, with its impeccable record of crisis management... How would the British government handle an alien invasion? We're thinking classic War of the World scenario here. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, but yet still they come. Woking is in flames. The army has been routed by heat rays and it falls to Theresa May to defend Britain. What does she do? Ian, isn't Brexit just alien versus predator? No matter who wins, we all lose. Yeah, yeah, no, that's... Thank you for inserting my nerd reference into that one. No, it's surely... It, it, I mean, they'd go for children of men, wouldn't they? Like, children of men was the best example of how a British government would respond to any kind of severe global calamity, which is we will put up really fucking big walls and start screaming about immigrants. And I can't see that any kind of preparatory sort of work by the British government would exceed that proposition. And leave voter Michael Caine will just sit and smoke weed. Oh, that was a really good Michael Caine before. He was actually likeable in yeah. that one and wasn't just Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah, that was a great moment. That would almost make it worthwhile. Ros, how does Jeremy Corbyn respond to an alien power carrying out mass destruction on English soil? Would he sort of say that it was all our own fault? You are joking, aren't you? Because, you know, he's quite cool with aliens carrying out destruction <laughs> on English soil, uh, as, as we know. I mean, uh, if you look at Salisbury Cathedral, I mean, uh, as long as they come on holiday, visiting... <laughs> look at the spire, the amazing spire. Beautiful. <laughs> then, yeah, then I, I don't see that he has a problem with alien invasions on British soil. And, um, yeah... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Would he say it's our own fault? Well, I don't think it's a question of fault. We welcome these guys because ultimately they're a greater power and um, we like strong, successful, or not perhaps not so successful, but at least strong uh, power blocks and we welcome them, uh, them onto our soil. <laughs> Christo, um, who do we think is, other than Jeremy Corbyn, the, the most likely uh, of our politicians to welcome our new alien overlords? Oh, uh, absolutely. I think Theresa May would welcome oh, them. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Allow them to stay, work, get lives, brief, like have families, all that kind of thing. And then in about 20 or 30 years' time, ask them to produce documentation <laughs> for their landing. They'll become the Mars Rush generation and they'll be sent straight back. Get rid of them. Well, we had some very good ideas on Twitter. Uh, UK Must Remain said the aliens need us more than we need them. The humans hold all the cards. <laughs> Only Ennui said, for heaven's sake, stop talking the invasion down. <laughs> and David Smale said, we'd all be killed with all the benefits of not being killed. <laughs> now we come to a section I'm calling Why Are So Many Baby Boomers So Selfish? <laughs> Their generation began with so much hope and cultural change, but now they've spent all the university grants, bought all the houses, used all the fossil fuels and made best use of the NHS. They've decided that it's young people taking the country to the dogs. This is, of course, a gross generalisation, and to those boomers shunning their peers, we salute you. 
I have come to the conclusion that some older people just don't like young people was what Dragon's Den star and past guest of the show, Deborah Meaden, tweeted after the climate strike last week when thousands of school children turned out to call for urgent action on global warming. And the response was James cleverly saying they just wanted a day off school. Toby Young, of all bloody people, calling them idiotic and self-important. Yes, that's right. The self-important sexist idiot Toby Young (laughs) called other people idiotic and self-important. And Telegraph politics editor Christopher Choate pointing out the real victims here, the lawn outside the commons, which has now got all (laughs) trodden up. So apparently it's great when disenfranchised, left-behind pensioners get involved in politics, but when it's kids who have to live in the world that the current politics creates, that's bad and they should be quiet. Roz, have we got an old versus young problem in Britain? Yeah, I think we have. Um, I think it's partly for the reasons you mentioned about uh, money fundamentally. It's partly about geography. Uh, In Britain, we have a big tradition of people who want to make it big coming to London and living there and only really going home to see their aged parents at Christmas and a couple of other times. And I think we're not very good at keeping the generations together uh, and... That's partly a housing problem as well. I mean, who in London can invite their parents to come and live with them? I know they wouldn't fit in our house. You know. <laughs> You've got a utility room. That surprised me. Still can't get over that. Yeah, they could. They could. They, they can sleep on the washing machine. No, I mean it's. Uh, and, and why would they want to anyway? They've got. Uh, you know, my in-laws have got a nice, uh, nice place in Buckinghamshire. Why would they want to move out? And, and breathe in diesel fumes. And breathe in diesel fumes. Exactly. They're saying it quite insistently now. My in-laws are perfectly happy where they are. There's absolutely no way they're coming to the house. <laughs> well, it is a, it is a problem, and so we we're not very good at keeping people together, and that has created resentment and the accumulation of um, wealth in that generation, and the fact that we haven't reached the point where a lot of them are being forced to downsize. Um, they're still, you know, clinging on often in um, in houses. I'm not referring to my nose here; they're, they're perfectly <laughs> independent. But a lot a lot of them are, and so that is it means we talk to older people less generally and I include my own, uh, myself here as a middle-aged person we talk to el- uh, elder people less and of course um, in a way technology has exacerbated that because some of them have got email now but they're not on the sa- at the same place as we are in terms of how they're communicating mm. we don't often talk on the phone anymore I used to talk to my mum on the phone all the time she died 10 years ago and I'd that was how we kept in touch. People no longer talk on the phone. No. Millennials actually, they really don't like it. They get very angry if you leave them a voicemail as well. Don't make me call you, just text me. Well, voicemail is obviously the fucking work of <laughs> Satan. <laughs> and then I've got rid of like, mine altogether. I just went up and just went to get... Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible, terrible. And people should not call on telephones. That's not what that device was invented for. <laughs> that makes no sense to me whatsoever. That's really interesting, the thing that you said about us spending less time together. Like I always feel quite almost sort of envious of the European... You know, like when you're on holiday in Spain or Italy or whatever and you see the kids are out at the quite but various ages. Yeah, 11pm, 12pm. There's less of that generational split, which you get both ways. I mean, mm. it's almost like over the, once you're over the age of sort of 28, to go into a, like anything where young people go is like the, the worst, the most shameful, embarrassing thing you could possibly do. And so there's this real two-way sort of idea of keep the kids away from us and the kids sort of, you know, when everyone mm. kept away from them. That doesn't necessarily 
into a really good place. I remember I was crossing the road in Wagreen the other day, and there was these sort of like three or four girls. They were all you know quite young. They were like maybe like eleven, twelve, and they were quite loud. And I felt that instinct in me, which is the start of that middle age instinct, to be irritated by their volume. And I suddenly remembered being that age, and the way that all adults around you seem to instinctively dislike you on the basis of your age. And you know, yeah. if you made any noise or yeah. anything, whatever, don't run, don't <laughs> shout, right. As if you were this permanent, simmering sort of social or cultural threat. And so it's constantly... I have to work on killing that idea in me of, of just like, no, 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 what the fuck? Like, really? You can't be jealous of the fact that they have more life units left of them than, than you do for yours. Were you told not to swear as a child? I was regularly told not to swear <laughs> on, on the many detentions and Making suspensions from it. school Making and blah, blah, blah. That was now. good. Yeah, um, yeah Christo, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to kind of ask you, obviously... By its nature, talk radio doesn't get a lot of school kids calling in, but it probably does get a few more senior Britons. Where do you think they're getting their rage from? Um, I think that it's a number of of things. I think it's looking at the older generation that seems to be having this identity crisis. I think that they're feeling like they're not being listened to. I think that, again, it's about this idea... The old generation, my mother is excluded from this, by the way, being the gay son of a Greek mother. The only <laughs> I mean, there's no danger of us having no contact. The only difference between her and a pit bull is a pit bull will let go eventually. Um, so Mother F is very much involved. But um, but uh, I think in general, uh, people feel like they're not being listened to. I think they feel that the older people, I think a lot of it's to do with wealth from young people looking at older people who, you know, as you rightly said, Rod's getting, getting on board with the housing, being able to do all of that stuff um, and climate change, of course, being denied by a lot of people of that age. But I also think when it comes to the older people, um, I think that they are part of, as I said, this identity crisis that Great Britain is having. They have lived through us, you know, once being this empire, declining, um, you know, after, well, booming for a while after the Second World War, then going into decline. They've lived through all of this and probably don't quite understand what's happening and how the world has changed today. And I think that is also why the two generations are really apart at the moment. But we do caveat all of this by saying hashtag not all old people. Um, of course, the boomers, by definition, are a very large part of our population. And also, not and all... within them, there are lots of really, really great uh, people who agree with our values and principles. And yes, there are some very pesky young kids, notably <clears throat> Darren Grimes, um, <laughs> who is very rarely told that he's too young uh, and should get his nose out of politics by the very same people complaining about those that came out on the march last night. And Friday. if you would like to stop my mother going anywhere that is uh, embarrassing for anyone over 28, please, <laughs> will you send that to her in an email? Because, I mean, I can't get a Mykonos without her following me, so you know what I mean? Like, oh, wow. okay. no, totally. Sitting on a bar stool with a drag queen having a gin and tonic at four in the morning. <laughs> It's my 70-year-old mother for you. <laughs> she sounds brilliant. She's very pro-Europe as well, so there we go. <laughs> That's probably the gin. We'll get her on the show. <laughs> and we're nearly at the end of the show, which means our guest Christo is going to select something for our Brexit time capsule. Christo, what do you want to preserve in aspic for our post-Brexit future? Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to because, you know, it does allude to something that I've... I'm having a bit of a renaissance for at the moment, so it's probably a bad time for me to do this. But I'd like to put Margaret Thatcher in there, please. Go can ahead, I do and that? explain. That's the most controversial answer. We've had. <laughs> you no, can, so long as you explain why. <laughs> because just much for the reasons that I said earlier, that I think, and there is logic with me on this. I think a lot of people on the anti-European 
side of things, the pro-Brexit side of things. I wonder if they would be less pro-Brexit if they felt like we had had a leader over the years that was fighting our corner more in Europe. I think Europe had been brilliant to us. They've bent over backwards for us. They've given us concession after concession. But I think that there has been this idea still perpetuated by the media that we are this weak player in Europe. And I think perhaps if we'd had a leader like her, love her or loathe her, there would have been an idea that we were getting a better deal than we were. Well, I tell you what, so long, logic. As, so long as she's wearing the jumper with all the flags on it, we'll have her in the <laughs> Yes, Sandcastle. totally. Or a lovely pair of court suit, uh, shoes and a Marks and Spencer's navy suit with a nice bow. <laughs> Not that I've ever looked at the fashion of Margaret Thatcher throughout my teenage years. Enough Thatcher sartorial chat. Um, our closing European language clip continues to expand its horizons and improve your word power. This week it's a bit of Yiddish from listener Janie S, who says this is a traditional Yiddish song summarising our lives post Brexit. Zontik, Bulbes. Montik, Bulbes. Dienstik und Mittwoch. Bulbes, Donnerstick und Freitag, Bulbes, Oberschabes in der Novine, a Bulbe Kegela, Sonntag weder Bulbes. The translation is Sunday potatoes, Monday potatoes, Tuesday and Wednesday potatoes, Thursday and Friday potatoes, but on Saturday something special, potato casserole, and Sunday potatoes again. Actually, Janie, it's going to be leeks. <laughs> Listeners, if you're fluent in any European language, send us a short recording to info at romaniacs.com and we'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Christo, thanks so much for coming in. We hope Hefkaristo, you enjoyed Agapimu. it. What did that mean? That was Greek. Thank you very much, my darling. Oh, <laughs> will you be marching on on the twenty third of March? I will be now if I'm, if I'm invited. You know, by any of the right. special gang. You can have a Romaniacs placard to march with. You can come and perfect. Come and join I'm going to put a photo of Thatcher it. above it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Ian and Roz as ever, and our producer Alex Reese. We're back next week as we move ever closer to the edge. Until then, here's our theme tune, "Demon Is a Monster" by Corner Shop, and our thanks to some of our Patreon backers. Many thanks from me to Louise Kershaw, Douglas Fleming, Olive Rayner, Sampo Kossinen, Ilsa Mogensen, David von Dadelschen, Jenny Panayi and Chris Smith. And it's greetings, good sir, to Ben Harris, Tim Finn, David Spiro, uh, Alan Cohen, Thomas Vorden, Alison King and Rob Sorder. And a big shout out from me to Nikki Robson, John Bowen, Emma JK, hello Emma of Remain and Now fame, Janice Battersby, Norman Dalgleish and Jeff. Just Jeff. Thanks to all, and we'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Naomi Smith with Ian Dunt and Ross Taylor. The producer is Andrew Harrison, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.